0: City Lights is a community of faith in Jesus, seeking to equip people to exalt Him and extend His kingdom. This message is from our study through the Gospel of John called Believe, Jesus Changes Everything. If you are encouraged and challenged by this message, please share it with someone, post it on social media, or let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast going to continue our series in John chapter 15. Kyra uh, found out, if you want to open there, Kyra found out I'm preaching this um, sermon this morning. She said, boy, you got have your work cut out for you. She didn't even know I was preaching after Dorell and Moody today. And, uh, and she said, "Yeah, your work because I open it up and the, the title of this thing is, Je- or the world hates Jesus and the church. And I'm like, oh great. So Timothy gets to preach on love and I got to preach on hate and, uh, and persecution. Um, but But ultimately, if you look at the scope and span of of the upper room discourse in the late chapters of John, John 15 and 16, it's not about the, uh, the challenge, oppression, affliction that goes on outside of the church. It's about showing the glory and the power of the Holy Spirit overcoming the world. And so the pretext of John 15, which talks about the world, sets the stage for a need for a helper. For the Holy Spirit that supports, that comforts, that teaches, that stirs ultimately. And we're going to be looking at really the role of the Holy Spirit in the next couple of Sundays through our study of John. But I'll go ahead and open up, uh, read the passage through, and we'll begin. It says, if, and many commentators really just use that word interchangeably, if with since. Because it is not really an if or conditional, it is an absolute, the world the world, if the world hates you, then know that has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, This is a key verse I feel, because they do not know him who sent me. I mean, they knew Jesus. Many people live in our society today know of Jesus, know what he does, know what he stands for. But he says very few people in the world know me, know me, know me relationally. Very people know. Have you ever met somebody before that from a distance you didn't like and you judged them and you had a bad feeling about that and a bad first impression? But the closer you grew, you knew of them. But when you grew to know them, you understood you didn't understand them in the first place. He says, don't be surprised when there's hate. Don't be surprised when, when, the, when the person that only healed and only fed the hungry and only loved people is hated because they know me, but they don't know me. They don't know me like that. And he says, they don't, they, they don't know the one that sent me. So what else can you expect? Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates the father also. He hates the father. You know, I, I heard a Gandhi quote in much respect to, to Gandhi and, and all that he's offered to justice, to social justice in, in the world. Uh, but there's a quote that I think helps us find position in this. He says, you know, I, I like your Christ. I just don't like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And it's, a, it's a stirring quote, and it needs its, its day in the sun because there's some truth to it. But the fault that I would want to point out here, according to this verse and really in, in the matter of truth, is that it's impossible to like Jesus. People that got to know him, people that know him, or people that got to know him closer, it's a polar black and white. It's either they have hated him or they loved him. It's, impo- it's impossible to just sort of like what he stands for without knowing who he is. And so Jesus is saying, the world doesn't just dislike me, it hates me. It hates me because I stand for what it doesn't stand for. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. The world hates and persecutes Jesus and and his church. How could the world who God only came to love the world and give to the world and be generous to the world... As Darrell was even presenting a moment ago, how could a, a man that only gave love be only receiving hate? And, and the answer is because they didn't know the father. They didn't know him. They didn't know what, what he was like. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I sent to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness about me. He's sending help. He's he's giving a spirit of truth is what it says in this passage, because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will even persecute you in the church, he says. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks he is doing a service unto God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you when the hour comes that you may remember that I told them to you. My daughter Rose is 11 and we have this arrangement right now where uh, she um, doesn't call out the stupid things that I do that she knows now are stupid that she used to fall for when she was nine and now she's 11, so she doesn't fall for them. I mean, where we have this pact now where I pretend like it doesn't happen and then she like, also pretends like it doesn't happen. But we both know that it happened. We both know that she knows now that I'm not as cool as she once thought that I was, if she ever thought I was cool in the first place. The other day I was picking up uh, Sweet Reagan for youth group to go to youth group together. We carpool and I went and picked her up and I'm on the other side of town and I put my right hand blinker on and from the back seat, she goes, uh, dad, your work is on the left. And I'm like, oh, you're right. I mean, I think I should know this, right? Because I go to work every single day, and Rose has been there like once, and she's like telling me where to go. The other day, she says to me, "I'm her basketball coach," and she's like, "Dad, just." She always has this caution thing, like, "Dad, don't do anything dumb, don't think, don't do anything stupid." Because people are smart, you know, they're going to figure it out that you're not that cool. And so the other day she says to me, and it was, it was a good point. First of all, I'm going to give her credit. She was upset because, and this is on me, okay, I, we all mess up. This is on me. As I was trying to teach them the pick and roll, and because they weren't listening, the youth pastor came out to me all of a sudden. And I said, you know, it's like a pick and a roll. And, my, and Rose was like, don't you ever say that again. <laughs> Don't you ever come up in my basketball practice and talk about some pick and roll? That's disgusting, Dad. You're 34. You should be beyond this. You know, she says to me, "It's a valid point, Timothy." She said, "When you're teaching," she just pulled me aside. It was a loving thing. It wasn't in front of everybody. Didn't call me out. But she said, "When you're teaching young girls to set screens, you don't set screens like this as girls." that doesn't do anybody any good. Like, you know what I saying? Mean? Like, it's not helping. So like, this is the proper way for all you upward coaches. This is how girls do. Okay. And I just forgot whose team that I was coaching. You know, they, they, they figure out quickly. They figure out quickly. And I'm so surprised at how fast, I mean, it, I know, right. It's cliche. It's like how fast the time goes, but it goes by so fast. And the thing about it that will get you as a dad is that there's actually a Reggie Joyner book called Phases. It's a great book. Kids Ministry reads it. It's awesome. It just talks about the phases of your kids and what matters to them in different phases. And it talks about how really it's a myth that you have 18 years with your kids. Because the reality is, is that once they turn about nine, then there's like a diminishing return on your time. And really you don't have 24 hours. When, when, when baby Oliver wakes up like, it's 24 hours, 24, 365 days. But with Rose, it's like you drop them off, you, right? You pick them up, and you totally, it's like four hours. And pretty soon, he says, after time in high school, they do sleepovers, and they go to games and stuff. And you might see, you've been lucky if you see your kids for two days. So I'm like, this is not half over. This is like 75 to 80% over. Like the time is, is flying by. And the influence, it's not only the quantity, but the quality of time diminishes over time. The amount of influence, like the amount of how much your kids listen to you matters less and less. They're just droning you out. It gets into that peanut snoopy thing where they're not just not listening to you anymore, right? They have other voices. And Rose came home the other day. She said, Dad, uh, I want an iPhone. All my friends have an iPhone. I want an iPhone. And I said, no. We're not going to get you an iPhone. And then she said, well, why not? And I said, because you don't have a job. You know, like, like, I'm used to, like, I have my phone. But these kids, you know what I mean? That's, it's not for just work. Like, iPhones, a lot of kids have iPhones. They all have Apple Watches. And I walked I drive by, they all have Apple Watches. They all have the cool shoes. They all have the cool North Face. They have all these things, you know. And more and more, the greatest influence in teenagers' lives, you guys know this, it's, it doesn't take a preacher to tell, like, it's, it's their friends. Like, friends are the number one influencers She comes home. She's like, Dad, I want to go over to my friend's house. I want to watch It. I said, excuse me? I'm scared of It. We're not going to go see It. She's like, my friends. My friends are watching. Like, that's what matters, right? My friends have these kind of. I don't want these shoes. I want these shoes. Why? Because my friends have these shoes. And and that's the middle school thing is that there's this kind of conformity of I don't want to stick out. I don't want to, you know, be weird. I want to be normal. I want you to be normal even though you're not. At least pretend to be normal. Yeah, but we're, but we're not really that far graduated from middle school, a lot of us, right? We, we want to be light. We want to be, be funny. We want to be smart. We want to say something. We don't want to say something and have nobody listen to it. We don't want to stick out. Like, we have FOMO. Mary Lee's telling me down here, she says, I have FOMO. I said, what's that? Fear of missing out. I said, me too, girl. I got a fear. I'm not afraid, like, to admit that I have a fear. I'm, I'm afraid. I don't want to miss out on something. I want to be part of the group. What's going on? I want to be part of the party. Nobody wants to get left out, and this, this inner urge to want to belong, like it's so common to 13 to 34-year-olds, like we just want to belong. We just want to be, we just want to, all the way, we just want to be part of something. We want to be known. We want to be, we want to matter, and sometimes I think that in my story is that sometimes that desire to belong can oftentimes compromise what we know is true and what we believe is true. And when we get together in social scenarios, we stop actually thinking about what's really true. We stop thinking about, like, they did psychological studies of, like, the people during the Cold War at the Kennedy table, you know, like, or the Johnson table when they had to decide things about Vietnam. Like, they just decided the person to the left and the right of them was so smart, they just kind of checked their brain at the door. And when they all mutually did that, there's this thing called groupthink where they just kind of coasted to whatever, like, you know, the momentum was swinging, and the reality is we, we stop thinking about the question what's true. Oftentimes, if you were to do some reflection, I would guess that a lot of your frame of reference to the question is not what's true, but what's funny, what's cool, what's, what's successful, what's beautiful, what's going to get attention. Like, these are the types of things, and if we're not careful, we absolutely leave completely astray is the question of what's actually true. Like, what What's true? And Jesus warns us about this, and the scripture warns us about this, is that in the effort to kind of protect relationship, we mitigate and we filter truth, and it actually undermines the relationship, because the love doesn't actually have truth in it. And James describes that as, as we're like waves that kind of get washed to and fro. We kind of chameleon in and out of where we are and what we're doing, and what's true doesn't really matter, is like who's in front of us is what makes the you know, flavor of the day to be true. Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, that we're, you know, the pure and hard, there's a blessing for those. And pure isn't just qualitative, it's quantitative. It means 100% of yourself, wholeheartedness, single-heartedness, not divided-heartedness, but it's a single-heartedness that brings us a blessing that we are, our yes is our yes and our no is our no. And, and, and downstream of that causal river, we find ourselves saying yes to separate interests and divided interests in our life. And we find ourselves overcommitted and not experiencing intimacy and not experiencing connection because we're shallow deep on a mile wide radius with a, a thousand different people. We know a thousand different people, but we don't know anybody. And ultimately the, the, greatest, the greatest tragedy and the greatest struggle is we don't even know who we are. Because the story that's really being told there is that I I don't really believe that I have a sense of belonging and I don't really feel like I'm worth having a belief. And so in the effort to belong, I'll just forfeit every belief that I have so that I can be loved by you. And so Jesus presents to us, this is is, I think the promise that we wanna keep our eye on because it is a, a gloomy passage, but the promise, the good news today is that Jesus sends us the spirit of truth. That's the promise. We were thankful for what wouldn't be possible a second before we met him is now completely possible, inevitable, is when we meet him, he brings what's called the spirit of truth into every situation. And here's what's great about that is that the spirit of truth is not a dogma or a doctrine. The spirit of truth isn't of itself a relationship. It is a person. Jesus says in the famous passage, John 14, is I am the truth. In actuality, any truth that doesn't have me in it isn't truth in the first place. His truth is different than our truth. Like our truth executed in love is this kind of thing of like, I know that this person over here is super annoying And has a lot of room to grow and needs extra grace, like an extra grace required situation. And so I'm going to do the job of having grace and love by kind of like not telling them and just kind of like being passive aggressive and maybe like throwing a couple comments over the side. Like that's our highest picture of like what truth looks like. But Jesus' truth was never forfeited of his love. His love was never bankrupt of his truth, but his truth was never forfeited as love. It's two wings of the same bird. It's perfect truth and perfect love because they're actually part of the same root system. Truth and love are two wings of the, of the same bird. And so his heart towards humanity is, you're, you're acting below your value right now. Like it's always, the truth always comes with an invitation to the relationship to live within that truth. The truth is never unrelational. The truth is never just mathematical. It's never a measurement to create distance. It always has this invitation to say, you're not acting to the way that you're created. You're capable of more than you can even imagine right now. And so the truth of live righteously is matched with a relational invitation to come and follow me and be with me as opposed to a judgment. It's a come near. And so the truth, you know, like like the church kind of stands on these platforms and says, well, the truth is, that abortion is a sin. And there's biblical causation and biblical rooting and and, and foundation in why that would be true, but that truth is never in the Father's heart and the spirit of truth is never absent from relationship and love. So So the back end of that sermon is that although abortion is less than God's best, he says, bring the children to me and I will foster and care for children. So my call is that if the church has a vision for truth that only Uh, draws the line against abortion, but doesn't have an equal and opposite invitation for adoption. It doesn't fully embody the spirit of truth. And therefore, it's not truth in the first place because truth is a person. It's not a principle. It's an invitation into relationship. And so our call today, our prayer, is God, help us understand all things, but let alone persecution through the spirit of truth. Call out to the helper. Spirit of truth will come, it says. There's just a couple of things that I see in this passage that, I think we can see through the spirit of truth about persecution. In verse 18 uh, through 20, he begins to talk about the world. And I want to focus on that because what you define in your Webster dictionary in your head of the world greatly influences the way you interact with it. Where you categorize what, quote, the world is, which I would submit to you that probably you have more uh, subjectivity and prejudice about, quote, what the world is that comes from you know, passive understanding rather than actual study and actual relationship with Jesus. The world is something that's, that's actually, this is the truth, I believe, about the world. The spirit of truth would reveal to us. The truth of the world is it's not a place as a zip code, as you would consider. It's actually a government. The truth is not a, so here's the thing is that there's three different types of worlds in the Bible, There's like the seven-day creation world. There's the John 3.16, like God so loved the world, humanity world. And then there's something called the power of the prince of, of, of the air, this dominion on the earth under Ephesians 2 that just talks about the place where God's not welcome. That's the system. So when you say the world of baseball, baseball goes beyond the diamond, Baseball in the 1940s deeply impacted race, deeply impacted World War II. It was greatly influential beyond the, the, the ballpark. Like the world is not a place. And so this is the most important thing about the teaching is like the, the myth that we can escape the world by coming in here is highly uh, flawed. The world is in this room. The world is, is gossip. The world is ambition. The world is the need for approval. It's everywhere where Jesus Lord. And it's the good news that I have to break to you as bad news is that you are not escaping the world by sitting in this seat. And the better news of that is that when we leave the front doors of this church, we are not escaping the kingdom of heaven because the kingdom of heaven is out there as much as it is in here. It's in places like the Olympics and government and well-run businesses and families, anywhere that Jesus is Lord. And so my, my word to you is this, is that anything, calling something uh, Bad that is good is iniquity. It's remeasuring. It's calling something that is evil good is, is sin. But just as evil as that is to call something that is good and calling it sin, right? Both, it works both ways. It's to, to call something that is part of the glory of God under the dominion of the kingdom of heaven, to call it bad just because it's not in the Christian bookstore or not in our small group or not in our family room or not in our church. We would like to, 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 to protect our children from, from, quote, the world, but we realize the world... Some of it is even in and around us. And that's the due diligence. That's the great fight. And so this is what it says in Ephesians 2, the scripture I referenced earlier. You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. Anywhere that God's not welcome, where the spirit is, is not wanted, and the mind, we were uh, by nature the children of wrath. He goes on to say in verse 21, and this leads into the second truth, I think the spirit of truth can reveal about persecution. The first one is just that the world is not a place, it's, it's a government, it's a way of thinking that we are not to be, Romans 12 says, not to be conformed to the patterns of those world. It's the place where Jesus is not Lord. Alright, verse 21 in John 16, it says, But all these things they do to you will be on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoke to them, they would not have been guilty, but now they have no excuse for their sin. As I mentioned earlier, this this, this gap uh, arises between the world and the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God recognizing that Jesus is Lord, the the, the world is a is in some ways, because of this passage, a villain. It's something that attacks, it's something that mutilates, it's something that hurts and and despises and hates. But the world is not only a villain, it's also a victim. If you look at Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, it says the works of the flesh, and and this word flesh, it does serve our purpose well today because flesh is basically what happens to a body when it doesn't have the Holy Spirit in it. In the Bible, you'll see this word come up a lot. It just means, okay, there's, there's a place a government where the where rule isn't accepted and then there's a person and a person that doesn't expect the doesn't receive the um indwelling of the holy spirit that is just called flesh it's the body without the spirit and that's why he says in galatians 5 there's this spirit uh, kind of impulse and then there's this flesh impulse and it's just saying when the flesh rebukes or doesn't receive or kind of rejects The spirit, then, it's just called the flesh. And the acts of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division. This is not an exclusive list. It's basically all the types of things on this list that Paul talks about that happen when God is not invited. Um, A friend of ours, um, of of both the biggers and myself and some of the people in this church, named Mike Breen, he does this study. And he talks about uh, the three root or three branches of sin. He says all of those categories in Ephesians 2, they can all be categorized into really three words, approval, ambition, and appetite. Approval, ambition, appetite. And so he talks about how Jesus goes out into the desert and the enemy tempts his character on those three levels. Turn this bread into stone and appetite, you know, kind of like this is gonna be your glory and stand upon this and you know, worship me and then I'll give you the, the kingdoms of the world. And that's, that's the uh, uh, ambition side of things. And he said, all of the things in this list, if we're looking at enmity and strife, they all fit into those things. But then all three of those things ultimately just find their root in one place. And that is the doubt that God actually loves us. What he was testing was not in the desert. The enemy, when he, the Spirit led Jesus into the desert, and the enemy tempted, our only persecutor here, when the enemy tempted Jesus, he, he tempted him in those three ways, but really he was only tempting him in one way. Do you believe what your father said about you at the baptism? Do you really think that you are his son in, in which he is well-pleased? Before you did any ministry, before you re- resolved around any temptation, do you actually believe that that is who you are and whose you are? Do you believe it? Do you believe that the Father loves you? And so if we look at this list and we understand that, uh, the truth, the spirit of truth to help us understand, look, this person is, is, is flesh and blood. It's, it's a person that has yet to meet Jesus. It's a person that's living below God's best for their life. If we understand this, then, then really we understand the world is a villain, but it's also a victim. It doesn't have sin problems as much as it has love problems. It just needs to know Jesus. The reason why the world hates the reason why the world doesn't understand, the reason why the light came into it and it could not comprehend the light is because it hasn't known Jesus. God doesn't make sense without Jesus. Without Jesus, God is a legalist. God is a killjoy. God is just rules to be followed. It's, it's truth without relationship, but Jesus is the extension, the perfect extension of the word becoming flesh in our life. As the message says, I love, it moved into the, he moved into our neighborhood. He pursued us. And it just makes, it, it makes, it, what other conclusion? In other words, like, because they do not know him who sent me. In other words, he's almost like saying, how else could they not worship me? How else could they hate the only one that loved me? Why? Because they don't know me. They don't know, they don't know who I am. So the truth is about our persecutor is our true persecutor is invisible. The real person that's being persecuted When we are persecuted, when we have relationships, and we all do, we all have relationships where truth is not welcomed, where our belonging would be at risk if we spoke about our beliefs. We all have that kind of cost-benefit analysis in our family and our friends, and that's not the way that it was meant to be, but underneath the curse, the power of the kingdom of the air, that's the reality. And what he's telling you is that don't be surprised when people persecute you and when they hate you. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when when you're in high school and you're teaching and one kid grabs another kid by the hair and starts jamming their face into a locker and and a swarm of other high schools will come out and just pull their phone out and record it. Don't be surprised about that because that's the era that we live in. And that's what happened. It's like a fish that would be pulled out of water. So it is that we desperately as humanity will flounder without the love of God. And that's where the world and and the kingdom of God actually have more in common than they have separate, because we're both in desperate need of the love of God. Our great persecutor is not seen. Our great persecutor is not made of flesh and blood. It is not our family member. It is not that person who is, who is, who is bullying. It is not that person who is manipulating. It's not that person who's being passive-aggressive. It's, it's an enemy. Peter says, beware he is a roaring lion who's come to kill, steal, and destroy. And ultimately, he's not even just trying to kill, steal, and destroy just directly us. We're we're getting attacked, Jesus would say, we're being persecuted by proximity of him because the only one that he's really, the enemy's trying to attack is Jesus. That's why we get in the fray. And that's why he says, actually, we're going to find more comfort not following Jesus. We don't have to be persecuted. Persecution comes from being proximity to Jesus in the fray in the backlash, in the collateral damage of attacking Jesus, attacking the head, if you will, the analogy is that Jesus is the head and the church is his body, you can't attack the head without attacking the body because attacking the head, and that's why he says to Saul when he falls off his horse, not why are you persecuting the, 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 the early church, he says, why are you persecuting me? Because every attack and every calamity, every affliction that's ever happened to the father happens to us and every time that uh, the enemy would come to persecute us, he's also attacking Jesus and Jesus is with us, with with a spirit of advocacy, with a spirit of help. And so our true enemy is not the one with flesh and blood. It's not the professor. It's not the the, the parent. You're not talking to, to the enemy verbally. Spiritually is where the attack is coming from. It's an unseen realm. Lastly, and I think it's very important for us in the American church today, back up to verse 19. It says, "If you were of the world, the world would actually love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, uh, the world hates you." I've I've preached maybe two or three times on persecution, and I have to do it with tongue and cheek because, come on, guys, I had a Starbucks on the way. Like, we're not being persecuted. You understand? Like, so so to kind of heroize the, like, make make heroes of ourselves over this thing, and we're we're trying to play the wrong part. Like. We have friends in Sri Lanka, they're being persecuted. Like, they're in threat of, of death. Like, you can go home and read these, these websites about persecuted.com, and it's like there's, there's, mo- there's churches being just bombed and blown up in Egypt right now. Like, hundreds and hundreds of people are just being killed because of their faith. In India, like, you know, you come to Christ and you leave your family. Like, you leave your livelihood, you leave your community, you're kicked out of everything and your relationship and your financial well being. Like, we're not, we're not being persecuted. But I will suggest this point, if the spirit of truth will allow us to see this with new eyes, potentially the persecution that we face in America can look like comfort more than it looks like pain. Because all the enemy really would want, the great persecutor, not to give him any more glory, but the persecutor, the only persecutor that we face, it's, it's a different vehicle, but the aim is still the same all across the world. It's conformity. And if he can use comfort to make us conform Instead of things like pain and separation and loss, then he'll use either of those weapons because it's not about us, it's about trying to rob from the King of Glory. That's what he's mad at, and that's what he's trying to do. And what if, what if the, the conformity, what if being the same, what if the need to be accepted is actually our, our greatest enemy? And what if blessed is the persecuted in Matthew 5 is actually true? And that the people in the dispersed places of the world where the church is spread out actually experience more joy, kingdom of heaven, and freedom than we actually do. we think we have freedom and we are are a place of of liberty. And maybe spiritually, they're more free than we'll ever be. Maybe the truth about persecution is that we can receive persecution in this country through comfort before we actually receive um, any pain. But ultimately, this this is our hope this morning, is that ultimately, persecution division, um, judgment, when you're judged, when, when you're maybe not disowned, but disincluded in your family, when you're categorized because of your faith, and you're um, put through this kind of prejudice because your church or because the church has been used to do this, and then so therefore are you. If that's any way your story, if any way your story on Monday is, is your part of a relationship where you know that truth is not actually going to be accepted. And so you're needing to kind of fight for belonging within the relationship and not actually be able to, to abide by the spirit of truth. And you're divided in your heart because of that. Cancer is cancer. Persecution is persecution at any scale and any level. And it's still aimed at the same place. It's still trying to do the same thing in the same ways. If that's your story at all, then the good news is ultimately that persecution because, uh, because of Jesus is a completely invalid practice. He says at the end of this, take heart. Like I'm going to share the bad news with you just to make you understand the brevity of the good news. The Holy Spirit is victorious over every issue that you're ever going to face, and take heart and take joy in that persecution because I have overcome the world. It's it's already been established. It's already been finished. He's already won the fight. We're on the winning team. There's, there's trash talking during the garbage minutes of the basketball game, but that's it. We are on the winning team. So I used to, uh, I, I, play, I play basketball. I play church league basketball, which oftentimes the quote is that there's nothing church about church league basketball, and it's pretty true. And so I play church, with, church basketball at Brookwood, and, uh, and in church basketball, if you've ever played it before, it's a lot like the NBA, but nobody's watching. So, people are taking it real seriously, and we really want to win, and we're like calling timeouts and calling plays, but nobody knows how to do anything the right way, and ultimately it looks a lot more like upward basketball. It doesn't look like the NBA. But the point is is that inside, internally, it's like the NBA. And one time we were playing last year, I'm in like the 18 to 40 league, I guess. I tried to get in the 40 plus league um, based on injuries, but they wouldn't let me, so then I just run around, and I'm developing asthma, I think, just from playing in this league. But, so, we're playing. And we're up by, like, 20 points on this yellow team. And this dude comes down, and it was a, you know, house of highlights move. I mean, he just did some, sh- you know, shuffle, sh- shammy-whammy, and hit some three. And uh, he looks straight at the guy who's guarding me. I'm sitting over here on the bench. He looks at the guy that is guarding me He says, boom, just like that. He's like 30-year-old guys. It's like, who, who are you talking to right now? Like, boom church league like this is serious he's like letting his guy know that I have emasculated you like I am bigger and better than you in every single way boom just like this like this and it was just this I mean it's so it's so it's so awkward because nothing's like squeak 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 like there's nothing going on everyone's just like quiet now and then finally here the guy goes dude look at the scoreboard (laughs) you know like look at the scoreboard and, and the spirit of truth, the cool thing about it is, is it allows us to see a perspective of a greater reality than what we're in right now. And the truth is, is like persecution is a, is a blip and an inconsistency and an overall continuous pattern towards glory. Like the truth, the spirit of truth puts us in a position to look back and understand now, not later. Like that doesn't matter in the scheme of things. What matters is the unseen. What matters is souls. What matters is truth. What matters is love and the spirit of truth executing itself in the world. But if somebody has something against you and offense with you, that offense is actually not even valid. It's a bankrupt check. It's trash talk and the garbage minutes. Like, it, it doesn't ultimately affect the course of the game. We are on the winning team. We are destined. Like C.S. Lewis talks about this. This. You know, this um, when he talks about the sovereignty versus free choice, and he just says, between sovereignty and free choice, Calvinism, all that stuff, it's either way. It's a river facing in the downwards direction towards grace, and that person is just, is an enemy for a season, but ultimately, he can and will, or she can and will, come to glory to know him. I think that the show and tell we find is in Acts chapter 16. I'm gonna brush over this passage and give us some takeaways today, but the story of Paul in prison um, there's a cooperation just to leading up to this, where Paul and Silas, two great apostles in the new early early New Testament church, find themselves in prison because of not, not the magistrates or the government or the political uh, uh, authorities or the slave girl that kind of t- tells them in. He disrupts, and as this Acts 10, it talks about the church is turning the world upside down. He disrupts the the natural even keel balance of society, and they find themselves in prison. But it's not because of a slave girl and it's not because of a president that's sitting on in a certain seat of authority it's because there's somebody that's come a a, a ruler of the air to kill steal and destroy and so they find themselves in prison and and as we look at this i wonder if we could see just a set of glasses to help us understand what it looks like if our greatest enemy and persecutor is unseen what it looks like to call on the helper that has overcome that enemy to truly get to the source understand from the spirit of truth who we are whose we are and therefore how to how to how to approach uh, truth in, in right ways. And this is, the, this is the call. It says to call for help in John 16. And this is what I feel like Paul is doing. He's calling on the only one that can help him, the helper. It says, Paul's in prison. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken so we can talk about all this like on a theoretical level like yeah there's persecutors and god's going to help you out but like this is where we catch a vision for this thing this is where we catch a vision so we understand like truth isn't just something to be known truth is something to be responded to like the spirit of truth it doesn't just stop here in your brain it empowers you to influence the world around you with truth and so it says he's singing and everybody's being influenced everybody's listening and this is crazy and immediately says, all the doors were open and not just the people who were singing, but everyone's bonds were unfastened because of this recalibration towards truth, because of this changing of the mind between the ears. It starts between the ears of this changing, not being conformed by the patterns of this world, by the peer pressures and the needs to be liked. Understanding belonging must come from a deeper place in and in a source anyways. And what it's gonna look like when you're a tree rooted in that soil everyone's chains and bonds were unfastened. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And this is what I love. But, but Paul cried out in a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we were all here. We are all here. This is what I think is just so counterintuitive and so kingdom minded about the spirit of truth when it hits you in the place of, attack, calamity, and affliction of abuse and offense is that the distance between persecution and compassion is like zero for Paul when he's heavenly minded. Like there is no gap between the place of affliction and persecution for offense to live anywhere in there. There's no gap. There's no, I came to conclusion, there's no like, oh, at first I was like hating this guy and then I learned to forgive him. Like there's no even forgiveness necessary because he's never even dipped down to that subpar narrative. He's always lived with his head, you know, seeking joy in a higher place. He doesn't even have to do the due diligence of running through the 12 steps of forgiveness with this guy. He just already lives in the place of forgiveness. He already lives in the place of truth. This isn't my enemy, and this isn't my home, and this person can't do anything for, for me or against me because I'm on, a, I'm on a different team, and the score's already been decided, and so there's no, there's no reason for me to even get caught up in the snare of unforgiveness because In the scheme of things, things, persecution even isn't invalid in the first place. Isn't valid in the first place. And so it goes on to say this. uh, The aftermath, I think we all know, but, and the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down for Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your whole household is saved. The conclusion, that's the thing, is like truth goes on offense. It doesn't just corner up in the corner and say, well, you don't belong here because you're not part of the truth. Like it insists on invading other spaces. That's the way that Jesus is. And so he moves in. It's not just playing good defense. Like he moves in offensively into that territory and takes things that weren't part of the kingdom in a moment now are. And he says, and he looked at them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he, baptized. he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set foot before them. He rejoiced along with his entire household uh, and he believed in God. And so there's three things that I think that the helper um, would bring us to this morning. If we were to see the spirit of truth, we would know whose side we're on and who we could call upon and ultimately who's going to sway and affect uh, the course of, of our day, of our life, of, of history. And that is to call on the helper. That's the prescription at the very end of the passage. I'm not telling, he's saying, I'm not telling you this just to be doom and gloom and sit in the corner. I'm telling you this, so you can call on the helper and do something about it. So call on the helper, let the helper help you. Confronting persecution without, without the help of Jesus is, is, fo- is folly, it's foolishness. He it says call on the helper. And I think there's three things that I see in this passage, you might've seen them too, that, that, that the helper would lead us in. The first is that the helper is here in this room on Monday, as you approach relationships that are not accepting of truth, and by the way, all love welcomes truth. If it's really love, it'll receive truth. If, it's not really, if, it's, if it doesn't receive truth, it's, it's not actually you know, part of the type of love that Jesus brings. But the helper, he's, he says, he brings him, I, I believe he brings us into a spirit of consecration. You know the reality is, is that the only vulnerability we have to persecution is our jealousness for, that pers- for the people that are persecuting us. I don't know if you ever caught yourself doing this, but like in a lot of ways, I feel like the kind of Christian religious spirit, the reason why I get so up in arms about people that confront the church is because in a way they kind of wish that they had the same type of freedom and liberty and they still actually, you know, they're kind of jealous that, or we're kind of jealous that we can't live with as much freedom and liberty as that person is living in. And so we're upset because this person is like being able to, you know, hook up with who they wanna hook up with and make the decisions that they wanna make with their life and because they're achieving worldly success and, and because they seem on the outside happy and there's this kind of, woe is me, how come God's not helping me and how come I'm trying to follow and I'm not seeing the same type of fruit in, in my life? The reality is, is that if we do the right battle of understanding who we are and who we are and our belonging, then that persecution just becomes null and void because it's not a place that if I'm angry at you. I can't be angry at you. I have so much joy. I have to be sad. I have to move to the place of compassion. I have to understand like, where I am in the scope of reality. So the spirit of truth tells us to call on the helper and he helps to consecrate us. This is what's so bold about Paul is that he is living in such a, an equation and a reality that joy has to be found in somewhere else than circumstance the way that he's singing. He is not for one minute challenged. He is not for one minute discouraged about the circumstance because he knows the stakes of the game. And ultimately there's nothing to be envied or jealous or, or angry about in the first place. There's only room for love. There's only room for compassion because I'm so, uh, I'm so convicted and so, um, so held by the love of God and, and who God is over my life. The second thing I, ha- I think that the helper uh, does for us is he leads us into a spirit of compassion. And I was speaking actually to somebody um, in the church about something in this topic. And I really felt the spirit say this. The spirit of truth is I really believe as a normalized principle that if if we were in a situation, again, where truth was not welcomed within the relationship and we were to, to pray to God, I really do believe that if he were to pray with us and talk with us, and that is a conversation for 60 minutes, for like 50 minutes, he would talk about compassion and he would talk about moving to the place of forgiveness and love, because that's ultimately his heart. I think a lot of times we would get into that prayer closet and wanna pray for 50 minutes about like the theological reason why we're right or why they're wrong or like how I'm gonna poke holes in their argument or if they were to say that argument again, I'm gonna come up with my, my whammy, like one-liner. And for 50 minutes, Jesus is, or maybe 59 minutes, he's gonna say, none of that matters because we're not winning arguments through logic. We're winning arguments through the place of, of, of love and the place of the spirit of truth entering the room and trumping every other power and authority because we're not overcomers by by our intellect and theology, we're overcomers by the blood of the lamb and by the testimony and by the spirit of truth that enters into that engagement. All we have to do is call on the helper. And that's why I feel like when we call on the helper, he doesn't leave room for argument and and debate as much as he just leaves room for how can you express perfect truth through love and not just argue out perfect truth until you win it. Last one. I believe that the helper can lead us into the spirit of comfort. And I do believe that... um, you know, ultimately the call, like I've heard it said before that spiritual warfare is the only battle that you would turn your back to the enemy and your face towards the king. Because ultimately like all of the, all of the weapons of, of spiritual warfare, and we are somewhat talking about that topic this morning, all the weapons like the belt of truth and the shield, you know, and the helmet of salvation and the shield of righteousness, like all of those things are pretty much defensive weapons. And the position that we take is not to get aggravated or revengeful or spiteful, it's just to sit and feast in the presence of our enemies. That's what what he's called us to do. And so the helper brings us this place of comfort. You don't see Paul banging on the doorway or trying to engage in some conversation or prove that Jesus is right. You just see him and he's worshiping. And he does more victory in the battle by sitting next to and under the wing of, of his father than he does in all of the arguing and pushing and pulling and corralling. He simply does his warfare through worship. And so I believe that that's what he's talking about. in Later on in John 17, I think it even makes more sense and it grounds us is that the helper comes to give us a spirit of comfort, a spirit of perseverance, a spirit of joy, even in the midst of that circumstance. So I believe ultimately that um, as we become the people for the property, as we, as we really live out what I believe that God is calling us as a church congregation. Um, we, we are a church that wants to influence culture. Like if you've listened to the last couple of podcasts and been around here for the last couple of months, we're a church that believes that God is influencing the world, and so therefore the kingdom doesn't need to be afraid of the world. That's the baseline of, of what the heartbeat of this church is. And so we, we wanna see the kingdom of God influence people, and we have to know and expect Like, don't be surprised. This is what I feel like John 15 says. Like, don't be surprised when you are following Jesus if you don't catch hits on the way because if it hits the head, it's gonna hit the body. It's part of the process. Like, don't be surprised. Even inside a church, it says, they're gonna drag you out of synagogues too. The world is in the church and therefore persecution can be in the church because persecution is just what confronts Jesus as Lord and there's plenty of places in all churches that doesn't make Jesus Lord. So be be sober-minded, Jesus or Peter would say. Be sober-minded. Your enemy lurks like a lion, but don't be afraid. Take joy, worship in it. I'm victorious over it. That's the two things, right? C.S. Lewis says there's two mistakes we make: is one, not understanding that uh, we have an unseen enemy, but two, the second biggest mistake we can make is being afraid of him, because he's invalid. He's ultimately an invalid entity. He doesn't have any legitimacy. He's a bankrupt check. He's just a paper tiger. He's, you know, he's, he's not actually doing or moving anything. And so the vision for this church is like, okay, just spare me, like, don't laugh at it too bad. But the youth group analogy, right, this is the one that always sticks, is like, he, he's, he's calling us to ultimately be, you know, thermostats, not thermometers. Like the thermostat, the thing about thermometers thermometer is accurately, yeah, it's, it doesn't take a genius to sort of say, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and it's pretty tough out there, and remember, you know, hide and go we'll, we'll run, and like, watch out. Hang on till yonder. It's like he you know what 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 you see in the story is like no like God is intimately involved and he is fighting for the people that he loves. And you've never been persecuted apart from him being persecuted as well. He's with you and intimately involved in every single situation, and he's calling his church to be the head, not the tail, to be leaders and not followers. And, to be, and, and and ultimately to be, like I said before, this silly youth group illustration, to be, thermos, to be the thermostat instead of the thermometer, to influence. Have you ever met somebody that just influences the environment? just For good or for evil, for good or for bad, you can influence the environment. And this is what I believe is the call on this house. I believe that we're becoming the people as we begin to develop the architecture and all that God has architecture for our inner world. And he says you don't want to go out there unless you learn how to call on the helper for the spirit of truth. And that's our dwelling place. That's the place that we find victory is not out there by winning arguments. It's coming from the place of joy that I have so much rootedness in him and belonging. I don't need to be afraid of if I have belonging out there because I have belonging in him. Let's all stand and uh, would love to just close out this uh, beautiful, beautiful morning. Thank you so much for Moody and Darrell just uh, leading us this morning as well as the band. So, so excited about um, just what God is doing. But if you would just bow your heads to me as we close. God, I thank you for the spirit of truth that just brings what we could never have. It just gives us freely a new perspective and knowledge is so powerful in that way. And you just give us the very knowledge. We just admit that right now together as church. You are the fountain of wisdom and wisdom isn't just making the head bigger, it's making the heart bigger. And we thank you for Solomon's wisdom in this place. We thank you for the spirit of truth that's always connected to relationship. And I thank you that you did not come uh, to just protect, but you came to overcome the spirit and the principalities in our life with the power, the only power that can defeat that, which is the power of the cross and the blood of Jesus. And so we thank you for that. And, uh, and we just recognize your spirit of truth that are turning enemies into friends, turning near into far, bringing division into unity. And we thank you for unity in this church. We hold it as a gift that you've given us and we protect it um, as well as unity with you. We love you. And we celebrate you and all that we do in Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys, have a great week. You are sent, and happy Chinese New Year.